Uh, we can turn back to the passage we read there, Psalm 40, and we can think again about the first uh, three verses of the psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the mighty bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put your trust, put their trust in the Lord. Uh, psalm 40 is a well-known psalm. Um, I'm sure most of us have sung verses from it at uh, one time or another. It's a psalm that um, some of his verses are quoted in the New Testament. Um, verses... Um, Six to eight are quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 as applying to Jesus. Where it says, sacrifice and offering, you have not desired that you have given me an open ear. And burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, the eye is Jesus. Then Jesus said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book that is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. These are the <clears throat> only verses of the psalm that are quoted in Hebrews. Uh, but that hasn't stopped people speculating about whether or not the entire psalm applies to Jesus. And therefore, uh, when they do that, uh, they wonder if verses 1 to 3 apply to Jesus. And they will suggest that uh, if it, since it does apply to him, that his waiting patiently for the Lord uh, describes his outlook on the cross. And... Eventually, God heard his cry and drew me up, drew him up from the pit of destruction out of the mighty bog and set his feet upon a rock. And they suggest that refers to his resurrection and ascension. And then they look at verse 3, where the psalmist is singing and singing a new song, and they suggest that that points to uh, Jesus' celebration when he arrived in heaven and sang a new song, as it were, and the outcome being from that that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And all that sort of sounds... Um, Wonderful. The only problem is 
for suggesting that the entire psalm um, applies to Jesus is that in verse 12, the psalmist confesses his sins. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. So therefore, the whole psalm doesn't apply to Jesus, and I don't think verses 1 to 3 do either. I think there's um, a danger between interpretation and imagination. And um, we have to um, uh, watch at times what we um, think has been said in a Bible verse. But since we're talking about imagination, I think this psalm uh, does point to Jesus being central whether the psalmist mentioned that or not. But um, verses 6 to 8 are in the middle, and they apply to Jesus. And so if in verses 1 to 5 um, we have the psalmist celebrating past deliverances, then whenever they happen, we should remember that Jesus is central. And then in verses 9 to 17, the psalmist is looking ahead. And he's anticipating all kinds of uh, different problems. Despite his good efforts described there in verses 9 and 10, as he had announced um, God's help in the great congregation, the gatherings at the temple, he had uh, announced there how God had helped him. But still, as he looks ahead, there's trouble coming. And when we anticipate trouble, we should remember that Jesus is central. So this psalm, uh, I think, points us to that, doesn't it? Make Jesus central in everything, because he is central. And if he's not central in our lives, we are actually marked by imbalance. Anyone who doesn't have Jesus in the center of life is marked by imbalance. Whatever their circumstances are, whether they've just had some um, very enjoyable experience, or whether they have, are apprehensive of what's around the corner. It's important to make Jesus central. Now, we don't know when David wrote this psalm. I mean, David wrote psalms at different times in his life. And um, he often indicates when he wrote it just by some statement he makes in it. And um, this psalm uh, indicates that he's got enemies. So that probably suggests he didn't write it when he was young. Because when he was young, he was just a, a shepherd boy in his father's house. And even his brothers didn't think too much of him. So it's very unlikely that during his early years, 
when he was a believer, of course. He was um, estimated very highly by God himself. And um, in comparison to, uh, to others, David was uh, far above them, even though he was young. But he'd ha- he probably didn't have very many enemies when he was young, but here in this psalm, well, he's got enemies. As he says there in verses 16 and sorry, verses 15, um, talks about those who are attacking him, verses 14 and 15. So he's got enemies. And therefore, this psalm is probably written when he was older. And it could be that uh, the background to the psalm is either when he was on the run from Saul. We know that he was on the run for years and years. He just wasn't on the run for a month or a few weeks, but for long, long years he was on the run. And that would fit in with him in verse 1 saying he's waiting. Waiting. Well, he could have written it when he was on the run again from Absalom, his son. And again, he had to wait because his closest advisors, as we know, told him to flee because they imagined that somehow or other Absalom and his forces were more powerful than David. And David just had to wait to see what God would do. So it could be either of these two occasions. And for all we know, he may have had um, uh, many experiences where he had to wait. It's not hard. It's not easy to wait, is it? Especially in our immediate society. Push a button. The lights come on. That may work in the physical world. Doesn't work in the spiritual world. And we are affected by our society. And of course our the availability of things instantly helps stimulate a mindset of complaining. Things don't happen right away, then the whole world is against us. But of course, that's just because the immediacy of the modern world is actually just a facade. It doesn't point to the real situation. So David, he's got to wait. Now, um, David, as we know, um, was a poet. He wrote songs. And his songs are are very personal. And some people uh, write songs about themselves, don't they? And um, 
All we have to do is listen to the number of times the first person singular occurs in a song. And that tells us that the person that wrote it was actually thinking about themselves. And quite often, um, David in his um, Psalms, he uses the first person singular. And we have to ask, why? Is he just writing about himself? Is he merely informing us, this happened to me? Some people, when they write their songs, they are influenced by others. Maybe their family ties or their friends or whatever. They're encouraged to write their song. Who encouraged David to write his song? The Holy Spirit did. So why does the Holy Spirit tell David, write a song about your recent experience? Because the Holy Spirit wanted David to write something for others to sing. And to do it in such a way that his words can describe their experience as well as his own. So here we have the Holy Spirit speaking through David. But having sort of worked that one out, uh, we have to then ask what's the message we're being given? What is the message of Psalm 40? We read it a short time ago. Did we say to ourselves, what's God saying to me in this? It's not so much, although we have to use it in order to get the point, it's not so much what happened to David. I mean, what happened to David personally, is history. A long time ago. And while no doubt was very profound in his own experience, the real question for us now is, what is God saying to me? In Psalm 40, what's he saying to you? The message of the psalm is, isn't it, that eventually God keeps his promises. I mean, that is the message of the psalm, isn't it? There's lots of promises in the Bible, and some of them, well, we read them, and it's quite legitimate to say, well, God will do that right away. For example, where Jesus says, him that comes to me I will never cast out. So here comes somebody to Jesus. Is he ever going to cast them out? 
in either one second's time, a week's time, a year's time? No, the answer to that question is, he'll never customer. That promise is always fulfilled immediately. Anyone that comes to Jesus, instead of his arm, being, instead of him picking up, using his arms, as they were, to throw them away, he uses his arms to embrace them. But there are some promises that may sound immediate, that may not be answered for a long, long time. Jesus said to his disciples, in my father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. How long does it take Jesus to prepare a place? You can do it immediately, can't he? But the reality is that nobody who's got a room in the father's house has ever got it immediately. Sometimes they have to wait decades before God takes them to heaven. So some promises. And there's lots of others. Jesus assures us, and so do the other Bible writers, they assure us that God is at work within us. He's like a metal worker. Metal workers don't, be, don't insist on the immediate, do they? as they burn the dross of the metal. They just keep at it until the thing is purified. And that goes for us as well, doesn't it? God's promise to purify us, but that could take a lifetime. So some promises are not immediate. But the message of a psalm, I think, is eventually God... Um, keeps his promises. The Lord sometimes puts off the fulfillment of them, but as Augustine said, he never recalls them. He never says they're not going to happen. They will yet happen. So I'd like us to think about a few things from these verses. And the first one is, uh, realization of David. What he tells us happened. You know, it's, it's good to be precise about things. There's very few things that are worse than vagueness. I think, or maybe, or perhaps. Well, they're not much use for encouragement or certainty. It has to be realization. And David mentions that in the first line of verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. That was he realized. He had to wait. But then there's also God's response, and that's in the next line. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And then there's God's rescue. In verse 2, he drew me up from the pit of destruction from the mighty bog. 
and he put his feet on a rock, making his steps secure. And then in verse 3, we have David's rejoicing. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. And then it's lastly the recognition. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So David's uh, realization. I waited patiently for the Lord. Well, literally, the word patiently is not there in the original language. Instead, what is there is, I waited with waiting. The word patiently is is an interpretation, not a translation. And it could be uh, the right interpretation. That's possible. And and certainly uh, to wait with patience, with persistence, uh, with endurance is um, commendable. The, the kind of uh, patience that is being described here, if that is what is being described, is not the stiff upper lip kind of patience. It's a patience that is, it endures. It keeps on going. It accepts the reality of the situation and causes the relevant responses. I mean, it's possible to have a stiff upper lip and all we're doing is trusting in ourselves. In our resolve, our inner strength, and so on. And stiff upper lips may not be close to God's way at all. Very British. Instead of the word patiently, it could be the case that what David is stressing is, I waited expectantly. I waited with waiting. Well, when you, when you think about it, what, apart from expectation, could cause somebody to wait and wait and wait and wait? I waited expectantly for the Lord. And why would David wait expectantly? Well, I think we can see that in the name that he gives to God. I waited expectantly for Yahweh. Lord with capital letters. I waited expectantly for Jehovah, if we choose the older way of putting it, or Yahweh, the covenant God. The one who made promises to Israel. For he revealed himself to Moses and said there, just before he sent him back to Egypt, and he revealed to him, this is my name. 
And he, had, and he said to Moses, I have been listening to the cries of my people in Egypt. And of course, they've been crying for hundreds of years. And he said to them, I'm about to come to deliver them. Eventually, he came and rescued them. And when somebody, and when we meet somebody and they tell us their name, it's always good to note the circumstances. And when God chose to reveal himself as a covenant God, he did it to a people who had to wait. He had given the promise to Abraham, they'll go down to Egypt. And they'll be there a long time. But eventually, they'll come out. And... Uh, the people, I think, in Israel picked that up. Yahweh's never in a hurry. He goes at his own pace. But we know he will act. He does keep his promises. And therefore we can wait expectantly. The fact that my prayer is not answered five minutes later doesn't say anything about my prayer. Doesn't say anything about God either. It just says, I've prayed five minutes ago. The answer to the prayer might come in a short time or a longer time. It's up to God when the answer comes. Not up to us. But David, he's realized this. I, David the king, I have to wait until the king decides the best time to answer. And that's what he's realized. And of course, as somebody once said, persistence in something is an evidence of grace. God, I might pray to God about for something and you might as well, and we mention it once or twice to God, and next week we can't even remember praying about it. That doesn't mean the prayer wasn't legitimate. But what it does indicate it was it wasn't a burden. It wasn't a burden sent by God. But persistence in something is an evidence that God has sent it. And he is working within us to keep us on going on about it. And therefore, persistence in coming to God about something that he hasn't yet given is an evidence of grace. It's just something that is 
there. And because we know the character of God, and because we know how he operates, we have this inner determination, even as Job said, I will not let you go. So that is good. The dilemma really is not why God is not answering. The dilemma is why am I not patient? Why am I not expectant? Because if we know God, we realize that he works at his own timetable, not at ours. And we can't, we can change the clock twice a year. We can never change God's clock. He works to his timetable. And the time came for David for this situation to be sorted out. And so it happens to us as well. David, of course, knew he was undeserving of this. I mean, why should God help him? The only reason God helps him is because God's a God of grace. And, of course, as we read this psalm, psalm composed by David, but not really for David. This psalm composed for us we know so much more about the God he's describing. We know Jesus in ways that David didn't. And we know that Jesus is God's plan for us, a good plan, a gracious plan. And therefore, realization. Realization is very important. But then, eventually, there's the Lord's response. Or we can say that David actually understood what God was doing. All the time he was waiting patiently for the Lord and hearing these urgent cries. What was God doing? When we prayed to him this morning, what was God doing? Doing with our prayers. Well, he's doing what David says he did there in verse 1. He inclined. He inclined his ear. What images do you have of God? 
We must have some kind of notions in our mind. Why would David say he's inclining? Because it's a word picture. Why not just say he's aware of it because he's omniscient? That's a doctrinal statement that can remove a lot of comfort. How about the fact that he bends low? That's what inclined means, doesn't it? We see someone whose voice is soft and maybe he's having a, he or she's having a struggle to articulate something and in order to work out what they're saying, we have to incline our ear. That's what God does. He bends low to listen. We could almost say he puts his ear beside our mouth. Or even, perhaps even better, his heart beside ours. And there's David. I know in this Burden is going on and on and on. And it may have started off as a shout. With, with um, energy asking God to show his power. But with the passing of time, it just becomes a whisper. And it may become almost just a groan. Where is God? Well, there he is, bending his ear. And David, the Holy Spirit, didn't he, got David to describe God's reaction in this way. He inclined. Inclining inevitably points to nearness. That God is near. Circumstances might say he's far away. Because certainly if it's long years that David's on the run, where is your God, David? Well, circumstances tell me I'm in trouble. Faith tells me that God is bending his ear to me. He's right there, right beside me, listening. And of course, as I kind of hinted a minute ago, when we incline to hear what somebody is struggling to say, there's interest in us, isn't there? The person who's struggling is wanting us to know what they're saying. But surely as we listen, try and listen, we've got a real interest in what they're saying. And here's David. And he writes for us 
This is what my God is like. He hasn't answered my prayer yet. But he's really interested in it. And he has inclined his ear every single time I've made the petition. That is our God, isn't it? The God who condescends. Our prayers are never advice sent to the Most High. We're not heard because we shout louder. He inclines, he's so high. Nothing can reach him unless he condescends. Unless he comes down low. It's not like some kind of ladder that God is ten steps above us. And that somehow or other we can aspire to rise. If our prayers are going to be heard, God has to come down. And he comes down to where we are. In all the confusion and difficulties and dilemmas that we might face. The God who's there when we don't think he's there. It's very important to remember that. And then he heard. And of course, when God hears, this indicates he's, he has answered. David has experienced the answer, so he knows God has heard him. And by that, he's telling us, isn't he, that God knows how? And when to answer. He knows the best moment. Some of our, I'm sure it's true for most of us, if not all of us, some of our most earnest petitions have not yet been answered. And we can sometimes plague ourselves and say there must be something in us that's causing the delay. But the reality might be that God knows well, there's a reality, but in our own case it might be the situation that God knows the best time to answer. And when, we, when he does answer, we realize it was the best time. But it's difficult for us to grasp that prior to him answering. Because always there's this little niggle, oh, he'll never answer. That's not true. He will answer. He'll answer at his own time and in his own way.
And then David describes the actual rescue. <clears throat> the picture he has here is of a very deep cistern. There were pits all over the place in the ancient world. They didn't have signs up saying, watch out, here's a pit. You just had to keep your eyes open. And quite often people just fell into them by accident. Other times, of course, they could be prisons. Because they weren't just wee holes in the ground. Instead of being caves that were in front of you, they were like caves that were just going down. And once you went into them, well, you were stuck. This cave is made worse because, uh, or this pit is made worse because the pit of destruction has got the idea of being full of torrents of water. Somewhere or other, the bottom of this pit, and it's, it's an imaginary pit, isn't it? It's not a real pit. It's an imaginary pit. And David is bringing things into it that we might not find in a normal pit. And it may be the case that you don't normally find torrents of water in a deep pit. Although I remember going to Dunvegan Castle and seeing the cell that's there. And on high tide, the water came into it. And I suppose it all depended on the depth of the tide. But David's got this picture of, well, just imagine it. You're in this pit and all you hear is this noise, rumbling of water. And how much is there going to come in today? And I can't get out. There's only one person that could take him out of this pit, whatever it was. And he says, God drew me up. Which, of course, is another picture of God. You usually get drawn up by ropes, don't you? And we might say God has his ropes to take us up out of the situation from which no one else can deliver us. It's a good picture of conversion. Although I don't think it is describing David's conversion, but it's a good picture of conversion. I mean, your conversion and my conversion was not a 50-50 operation with God. He did it all. We didn't contribute anything to it. We were lost, perishing, undone, unable to do anything at all about it. And we heard the gospel, and the gospel tells us Jesus did it all. All to him I owe. And he offered it to us as a free gift. 
And even the first time we heard it, we didn't know what to do with it. The only gift in life we didn't know what to do with. But then, for some, as as Calvin often put it, his explanation for virtually everything in a Christian life is by a secret impulse. None of us can describe our conversion correctly. Our testimonies are all from our side. But what was actually going on inside, we don't really know. We just have smatterings of insight. But what the wise God was doing, we may not know, but we just found ourselves drawn to Christ. And he became the most attractive thing possible, the most attractive person his salvation, we just embraced it. I hope we all have embraced it. Because it's there for the taking. So it's a good picture of conversion. But it's also a good picture of every deliverance in the Christian life. Which Christian will stand up and say, out of my own wisdom, I got myself out of this predicament? We all can say, out of our own foolishness, we got ourselves into it. But which one of us can say we got ourselves out of it? And this pit that we can find ourselves in as believers, well, it could be anything. I mean, providence is a, well, it's just God's control of things and some of the things he allows into our lives. Well, we would never have chosen 99% of them. But there we are. And we're facing them. And it's good to know that God can do things. Anyway, when that happens, a song comes into our hearts and others see it and they rejoice. So as we see each other today, as we finish, remember that everybody you're seeing has been in a pit or is in a pit. Only God can take them out even as he took us out of ours. So it's good to trust in him. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that you rescued David and you can rescue us. And may you do so. Whatever may be the circumstances we're in, that you would draw us to yourself. Do it, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen.